This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To view faculty disclosures or to learn how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Lantheus Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I am a professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the American Neurologic Association's Office of Education. Uh, it's my pleasure to host another one of our educational podcasts and this specific podcast falls into our series uh, called the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast Series, Discussions in Genitourinary Cancers. Today's specific show is titled Peer-Reviewed Guidance on How to Manage Immune-Related Adverse Events and Toxicities. And it's really my pleasure to have uh, two outstanding thought leaders in the field, uh, Dr. Matthew Zibelman and Dr. Andrea Apollo, uh, both of whom are medical oncologists. Uh, Dr. Zimbelman is uh, Assistant Professor of General Urinary Oncology at the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. And Dr. Apollo is a medical oncologist focusing on genital urinary oncology from Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, Andrea, uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining. It's really our pleasure to have uh, both of you on with us today. Thank you for having us. This is uh, great. Looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having us. So uh, just briefly, we, we have a few learning objectives from today, and then we'll get started. The first is really to talk about some of the current evidence-based literature regarding some of the adverse events and toxicities associated with immunotherapies. And then uh, the second is really um, how to identify and perhaps manage uh, some of these adverse events. And so um, maybe I'd start off for both of you. Uh, obviously, um, as medical oncologists, this is a world you live in um, every day. And, and for urologists and urologic practitioners, um, I would say many are far less comfortable perhaps with sort of this realm of, of extended therapies for diseases. So I'm wondering if you could maybe just start us off with this, you know, the whole concept of these immunotherapies and, and where do they fit in? for these urologic cancers? And, and how do we sort through some of this alphabet soup of you know, PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA, um, and, and how all of that plays into the therapies? So I can go ahead and start um, just by saying that um, there are several checkpoints that we're using standardly now and are approved in GU tumors. Um, we have uh, PD-1, uh, PDL1, uh, and we have CTLA4 inhibitors. Um, and uh, uh, CTLA4 inhibitors are currently used right now in kidney cancer in combination with PD1. Um, and PD1 and PDL1 inhibitors are used in bladder cancer. Um, and generally, these were used for the last few years really for metastatic disease. Um, but more recently, there have been several approvals, and um, we can kind of talk about those uh, in bladder and in kidney cancer that, um, you know, are really bringing these effective therapies into uh, 
the, the earlier states of disease for both, both of these tumors. Matt, did you want to say anything about that before yeah. we start I'll talking about the approvals? <laughs> no, that sounds great. And I'll, I'll just add that um, kind of, as Andrea said, these are primarily really used in the urologic space for kidney cancer and bladder cancer. There's maybe a small niche of these for prostate cancer, not necessarily the focus of today, but there are potentially prostate cancer patients with um, MSI high tumors or high tumor mutation burdens who will occasionally um, be eligible for these medications. But I think our focus today should be on where we use these most commonly, which will be for um, bladder and kidney cancers. Yeah, so I can start off. Um, for kidney cancer, we predominantly use these in combination in the frontline setting. We have uh, Nebel Ipi, Axipembro, uh, Cabozantinib Nivolumab, Lymvantinib uh, Pembrolizumab. Those are all FDA-approved combinations. And we will talk a little bit about when you're combining this with other therapies, when you're combining two immunotherapies, when you're combining um, a PD-1 or a PD-L1 with a, a, a TKI, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, how a lot of these toxicities can be augmented. So I think that's important. And um, just actually this year, November 2021, the FDA granted approval of pembrolizumab for the adjuvant treatment of uh, kidney cancer. Uh, these are uh, uh, intermediate to high risk uh, of recurrence um, RCC patients post-nephrectomy. And this is based on disease-free survival data. And um, in terms of uh, for bladder cancer, these have been approved for many years now um, for uh, patients with metastatic disease in the second line setting. Um, right now we have uh, pembrolizumab and nivolumab approved in that setting and in the first line setting. Um, we have um, atezolizumab uh, for cisplatinum ineligible patients that are PDL1 high, and um, we have um, also pembrolizumab for patients that can't receive any kind of um, chemotherapy, and we have avelumab uh, for maintenance. But recently, um, just this year, um, again, uh, August um, of uh, uh, 20. 21, um, nivolumab was approved um, for the adjuvant uh, treatment of uh, patients uh, that are high risk uh, with urothelial carcinoma after surgery. Um, so these are patients that, what does high risk mean? Patients that received chemo and um, have persistent muscle invasive disease, T2 or higher after cystectomy um, or nephrectomy, or uh, patients that were not eligible and didn't receive chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting and have um, um, T3 or greater after radical resection. And one more approval that I wanted to mention um, is uh, uh, pembrolizumab for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, as of um, this, this approval happened last year, January 2020, um, pembrolizumab was approved for patients that are BCG unresponsive, high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer um, with carcinoma in situ with or without uh, papillary tumors that are ineligible for or refuse cystectomy. And, you know, the majority of the patients that actually enrolled in, in this um, uh, small trial, um, which was about 100 patients, um, actually were eligible for cystectomy but refused it. And um, the outcomes are not based on survival. The outcomes are based on um, complete response rate at three months. Um, uh, showing a 40% uh, complete response rate at three months with some follow-up data that has subsequently been presented, showing about 19% response in about a year. 
So anyway, so those are that's a summary of the approvals. I'll turn it over to Matt um, so he can talk a little bit about more about the adverse events. Sure. Uh, Jay, do you want me to move on to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, you guys hit a really key point, which is um, that that if you look at practice setting, right? So, you, you know, if you're at an academic medical center, I think there, there's sort of the segregation, at least at our place, there is where maybe in urology, we manage a lot of the localized or maybe locally advanced disease. And certainly then when it gets to more advanced disease, uh, N1, M1, and it's going to systemic therapy, we have this segregation, right? Urology, medical oncology. And, and I think to Andrea's point, when you're starting to get some of the new approvals, for example, high-risk kidney cancer in an adjuvant setting, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, refractory to BCG, this is a realm where especially outside of maybe academic medical centers, groups that are equipped to give this may start not only giving, but being able to give these therapies in a large group practice. And so this kind of leads to, to you know, why does this matter? It's, it's not so much simply, um, no one, number one, knowing the data as you highlighted, Andrea, but also sort of the second part of it is being able to recognize the consequences and sequelae of the treatments we give. And so I, I would say, Matt, maybe take us through so we've got this array of therapies out there and Andrea summarized really nicely sort of some of the new indications and it seems like every month or every two or three months there's more therapies that are coming out and more indications. But what do we need to know about for adverse effects and, and maybe what are the common ones and then and maybe how do you go about uh, counseling and or are there guidelines for how we should be looking at these? Perfect. Yeah. So I think... Um... I think first, piggybacking on what you just said, I think um, managing these drugs, knowing how to use them and understanding their use and limitations becomes exceedingly more important as we get indications in the adjuvant space and um, non-muscle invasive space. Because when we're talking about potentially curative intense situations, I think it's a different sort of um, thought process for the patients and for the clinicians about how does the risk of adverse events fit in. It's different than when you're talking about a patient in the metastatic setting where you have an incurable disease um, and you know, you're willing to sort of accept um, some side effects. It's very different when you maybe are potentially cured. And especially in the space we're at now where we don't have you know, full overall survival data or adjuvant settings, and we're still learning about the use of these in the non-muscle invasive space. So I think understanding how to talk to patients about toxicity and understanding how to manage it is really important. Um, so from that, I think the way I often talk about these drugs is what we're trying to do is get our immune systems to recognize and, and attack the cancers. Um, our bodies have these innate systems in place to protect us from infections um, and from cancers. And we're trying to overcome those signals to get the immune system to recognize these abnormally growing cancer cells. The problem is sometimes the immune system, either in addition to attacking the cancer or instead of attacking the cancer, attacks normal systems and normal organs in our body. And really any organ is at risk. Um, I often tell patients, any itis you can think of, itis is just inflammation, any itis you can think of can potentially happen. Um, some of the more common ones we think of are colitis, so inflammation of the colon, which can pre present as diarrhea or a variety of, of GI system effects. We can see dermatitis, um, which can present as different rashes, which can vary in, in severity and location. Um, we see endocrinopathies, which are sort of an interesting class of side effects that we see with these drugs. So whether that's thyroiditis, pancreatitis, adrenal insufficiency, um, various different endocrine, endocrine organs can be affected and essentially burned out and stop producing the hormones that we need, which then require replacement. 
Um, and then some of the more serious, but fortunately less common side effects we see um, affect things like the lungs, so pneumonitis, which can present as cough or shortness of breath, cardiomyopathies, which can manifest in a lot of different ways, um, but most notably presenting in, in a sort of heart failure capacity or with um, um, electrical abnormalities um, or neurologic complications. And we've seen things like Guillain-Barre syndrome um, and, and other neurologic complications that can be pretty devastating for patients. So first understanding the sort of scope of side effects that we can see is kind of the first step in recognizing and then moving towards trying to manage these patients. And, and I just want to highlight um, one thing that Matt just said is that this, these adverse events can occur in nearly every organ system in the body. So they, they're really, there's a wide range of severity from mild to life-threatening. Um, so, I, and I think often these can be underestimated because they're underreported because of the follow-up, because they can occur even after discontinuing therapy and a lot of clinical trials don't have um, long-term follow-up reported. I mean, some do, but um, I, I think that that's very important. And how common are they? Um, I do want to mention that they're a little bit more common with CTLA-4 inhibitors than with than PD-1 and PD-L1. Um, and right now, um, you know, CTLA-4 inhibitors are really reserved for the metastatic setting um, in combination um, with a PD-1. But um, in terms of their current, the grade three and four um, adverse events, um, those those are a little bit less common, and they occur anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of uh, of patients receiving therapy. But with CTLA-4 inhibitors, it's like double that. Um, it can be up to 30 percent. And when you when you have combinations, then again, you can have uh, higher rates of uh, immune-related adverse events. And, and Matt, I think you raised a really good point, which is. Uh, the, the patient mindset and tolerability for potential side effects probably is vastly different than when you're dealing with the patient with, you know, metastatic disease, right? Whereby the, the, the treatment burden's higher and, and the, the, the tolerance for therapy and side effects may be very different than somebody in whom you're giving it in an adjuvant setting, right? Theoretically to prevent these from, disease from recurring, but without any demonstrable evidence of maybe disease at that time. And I, I'm sure that the conversations must be, and the thought process from both you and the patients must be slightly different, obviously, when you look at these different scenarios and the risk benefits of, of therapy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very different conversation talking about using these drugs in the metastatic setting versus in a curative intent setting. You know, in the metastatic setting, the potential for a long-term durable response or durable remission, which we you know haven't touched on that's that's the great part about these drugs and so in the metastatic setting you know that sort of carrot is is worth the potential risk 15% 10% of of grade 3 or 4 adverse events it's a very different conversation with someone when we don't know in the adjuvant setting if if they may or may not be cured and if your chance of a relapse is 25% but your chance of a grade 3 or 4 adverse event is 10 or 15% is that trade off worthwhile and along with the coming to and from the um, you know, the center to get treatment and all the things involved with that. And so it's definitely a more difficult, more nuanced conversation with the patient in, a, in the earlier disease states. And, and we're, I think, all still learning how to sort of uh, define this well for our patients, you know, as these drugs have gotten approved. Yeah, especially the severe adverse effects. I mean, that, that, that's really scary 
if you know somebody is potentially cured and getting adjuvant therapy and they get a pneumonitis uh, or a colitis or, or a neurologic uh, immune-related adverse events. I mean, those, those can be devastating and really life-altering. Uh, so I think it's really important to have those conversations with patients in terms of the risks and benefits, especially as we don't, we still don't have survival data. So these these drugs are generally well tolerated, but they're not benign, and and that's you know I think that's what we want to highlight um, that that immune-related toxicities um, can be um, pretty severe when they occur. So you both highlighted some of the, the specific maybe side effects or complications or itises, as you mentioned, Matt, that can occur. But maybe before we even, you know, go through a, a specific sort of array of each one and how you manage those scenarios, are there some high level take home points for our listeners of maybe how you categorize these, how you counsel your office staff, um, what maybe therapies you might use almost ubiquitously, irrespective of which one of these side effects you might have. So maybe some high level stuff to start off with, and then we'll dive into each one of these separately. Sure. So I can, I can take that. And so I think, I think in many ways, this is a really important part of this. And especially as you talked about earlier, potentially providers at, you know, large practices, your logic practices, giving these drugs. And I think making sure that patients and staff understand what to look out for, um, what to ask about, um, and how to sort of uh, you know, how to, what to expect when taking these drugs is really, really important. Um, I think the first step in that is good education to patients, um, whether it's providing wallet cards, um, whether it's providing um, other more specific resources about side effects. I, I honestly just tell my patients that really any new or significant change in, in how they're feeling deserves a phone call to us and we'll be the ones to, to figure out, is this relevant? Is this something we need to look into more or not? I'd rather know early that a patient is having a new symptom or side effect because really potentially um, treating and reversing an immune adverse event depends a lot on early recognition and getting them on appropriate therapy early. And so um, I try to highlight as much as possible patients communicating to us. And then I think also educating staff, whether it's you know phone staff, nursing staff, infusion room staff, um, what to look out for, what to ask patients about, what's important, what's not. You know, new diarrhea five times a day is something that we need to look into more. Um, uh, a small change in their white blood cell count or their hemoglobin may not be as relevant for this, and we might treat it differently than we do with some other systemic therapies that we're using. And so sort of laying out some basic guidelines for, for staff about what to ask and what to look out for, I think is really important as a practice sort of um, thinks about using these drugs uh, more widely. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, education is key. Educating, like you said, the patient, making sure that they call us, have a low threshold to call us if something just doesn't feel right. Even fatigue, um, you know, sometimes things that they don't think are important, like blurry vision, um, you know, things that, that um, more frequent stools, new rashes, um, just having a low threshold to call us and also exactly like Matt said, educating the staff is key, um, making sure that um, we follow up on, on, um, on complaints and um, see how, how the patient is feeling and, and, and have a low threshold to bring them in and examine them and do labs um, uh, just to make sure that, that we're not missing anything because a lot of these are, are just reversible. I mean, we give steroids 
and we can reverse it. We can we can really um, um, avoid a, a, a higher grade uh, toxicity developing if we just catch them early. Do I, I know there are a number of different sort of um, uh, different criterion that can be used through different organizations. Do either of you have one in particular that you use when you're trying to obviously either for study purposes or just clinical practice grade the either the diagnoses or the, the severity of, of the adverse event uh, that you're experiencing or the patient's experiencing? So I use the, I, so I, I, I use the CTCAE um, uh, grading system um, because, you know, we do a lot of clinical trials and, and, and I downloaded it. There's an app. You can just download that and um, and then you can, you know, when someone has a symptom or you suspect something, you can look it up and see what grade it is. Um, and we're going to link um, some uh, practice guidelines um, to this podcast. Um, but the the honestly, I use um, sometimes I use two, sometimes I use three because I just kind of want to compare. There's little differences. Um, among them, um, but they they generally have um, the same idea, but you know just a little bit uh, of differences among them. I use my primary one is the NCCN practice guidelines for the management of immune-related adverse events. Um, I, I feel that that's updated a little bit more frequently, um, but you know they're all updated. Um, CITSI actually just updated their guidelines um, this year, 2021, and we'll link that. Also, um, ASCO also has uh, practice guidelines. Um, again, for the management of immune-related adverse events, and so does um, ESMO. Um, so those are the four major um, uh, practice guideline um, resources that I like to use um, to manage patients. Yeah, and so I, I, I agree. I use um, all of them at different times, and I think um, sometimes it is helpful to look at more than one because there are subtle differences. Um, compared to the early days, it's really nice that we have these guidelines available because there was a period of time we were using these drugs without any of that. And so it's great these organizations have come together, put out these guidelines. I think it's important to know that these are mostly consensus-based. And um, I think the next, you know, maybe big step in this is to really understanding from a, an evidence-based and a prospective way, how can we best manage these patients? And we'll, Andrea and I will talk a little bit more about um, management, but, you know, we still are doing this a lot based on you know, groups of, of experts and people who've used these drugs more, and, and we're basing our recommendations on those. And so there's no no perfect guidelines yet, but I think um, hopefully we're going to start moving towards um, some more standardized evidence-based guidelines based on prospective trials to really understand what are the optimal ways to manage some of these immune side effects. And I think, Andrea, you mentioned it, but, but um, it's, it's really sort of the, the the mainstay to start off with, is it really steroids? I mean, and we'll talk about each of the different ones, or does it really depend on what the clinical scenario or what the AE is that the algorithm we go down? It, it, it does depend on, on what the adverse event is, but generally for grade three, with the exception of endocrinopathies, these are managed with high-dose steroids, depending on the grade. So maybe let's just start going down the list. Um, I think, it, I can't remember who mentioned, but I, I mean, colitis, um, I think was mentioned. And, and so it, how, how do you approach somebody who um, is, is sort of presenting or at least giving you the signs and symptoms of a colitis event, perhaps attributable to one of these uh, immunomodulators? So I just wanted to clarify um, that, you know, we can say colitis, but there can also be diarrhea without colitis. And diarrhea just means increased 
through frequency um, and you know the the CTCEA um, has a specific uh, number of stools per day and, and that, that's how we grade it. So you can have diarrhea without colitis and, and, and of course this is more common with anti-CTLA-4 inhibitors than with um, anti-PD-1 um, or um, anti-PD-L1. Um, but um, the, uh, the diarrhea can be managed with anti-diarrhea agents and holding, holding um, the therapy. But um, when you have uh, more frequent stools and you have things like abdominal pain, um, bloody stools, um, or um, if you know the, the, you go ahead and you do um, uh, uh, colonoscopy um, and you have endoscopic findings that are concerning for colonic inflammation, then you know that 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 would be considered more colitis or or a biopsy. Right. And, and um, I, I totally agree. And I, I often really um, try to describe these as analogous to patients developing ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, right? Those are two autoimmune diseases that affect the GI tract. And patients can present with, um, you know, symptoms consistent with, with either of those potential diseases, whether it's diarrhea and more lower colon effects like a, a ulcerative colitis. But patients can even present with upper GI issues, more like you might see in a Crohn's disease patient where it can affect any part in the GI tract. Um, but if you do have grade three symptoms that meet CTCA criteria, um, or certainly evidence of colitis um, found endoscopically or pathologically, um, steroids is often the mainstay of treatment. Um, depending on the severity, we'll often start with about one milligram per kilogram of steroids. Um, some patients will improve relatively quickly with that. Um, and um, when patients sort of uh, improve from whatever grade they're at to grade one, you can often think about then starting to taper the steroids. Um, you do need to taper over several weeks generally, because if you taper too quickly, patients can have um, sometimes a recurrence of their symptoms, and then you have to kind of start all over again. Um, my practice, and this is may not be consistent with everyone, um, if I start pretty high, I do try to come down on the high doses relatively quickly over the first week or two, but oftentimes it's once you get down to maybe 20 milligrams a day of prednisone or equivalent, um, you sometimes have to go slower there because that's when I find that patients sometimes recur, but it does depend on the patient. Um, there are instances then when we have patients who are refractory to high-dose steroids, and after a few days of steroids at one to two milligrams per kilogram, we're not seeing improvement in their symptoms, and that's when we might think about secondary um, immune suppressive drugs. Um, uh, infliximab is a, an example of that, of an agent that can be useful in this setting. Um, vedolizumab, which is another drug used in um, for inflammatory bowel diseases, has also shown some efficacy in um, immune colitis. And so these can be useful both for refractory cases and maybe also potentially useful as an adjunct to steroids to help you come down or taper more quickly. Um, and so in severe cases, those are all things to consider. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to um, uh, echo uh, what was just said. Um, just make sure that the treatment is stopped. Um, I've, I've seen uh, sometimes that the treatment is continued and then the patient is being worked up. Um, I think stopping treatment is important if you suspect colitis. And also doing a workup, and an, an infectious workup, I think is very helpful, um, and getting GI involved. Um, whether to give oral steroids or IV steroids is also um, something to uh, the discussion that, that, that I've had. Um, sometimes patients um, want to go home and get this as an outpatient. Um, and, and, you know, it depends on, on the severity. 
um, how the patient is, is, uh, is, you know, it's very easy to get dehydrated and get into trouble. So for severe cases, I admit the patient to the hospital um, for fluids and IV steroids and completely agree um, giving um, anti-TNF uh, uh, drugs such as infliximib, um, sometimes even just one dose, um, you can see an improvement. Um, but colitis um, can be one of the more steroid refractory conditions um, that may require um, second, third, or even fourth line uh, immunosuppression. And mortality can happen from colitis um, if the patient, if there's a delayed in, in, in diagnosing it. Um, also non-compliance if you give oral steroids, non-compliance with steroids, um, or um, if uh, uh, lack of holding the drug, that's another, that's another um, uh, reason. So you, you both mentioned uh, earlier endocrinopathies. Well, what, what type of endocrinopathies do we see in these patients? What, what, what sort of organs does this impact? So, um, so it can affect any endocrine organ. Uh, most commonly, we will see um, the thyroid affected, and patients can um, initially present with, with either hyperthyroid or hypothyroid. Um, um, uh, is them, I guess, uh, depending on the laboratory values. Um, um, it's less common for patients to present with um, sort of clinically symptomatic hyperthyroidism. Um, many times this is sort of a, an acute thyroiditis where patients have basically attack of their thyroid, sort of release of T3 and T4 into the circulation, um, and then basically burn out their thyroid and then go into a hypo hypothyroid state. So for many patients, um, they can sort of be monitored until they um, basically become hypothyroid and then um, can be replaced with, with thyroid replacement hormone as you would otherwise. Um, although there can be patients who present with, with clinical symptoms of hyperthyroidism and those sometimes may need to be treated. Um, we can also see adrenal insufficiency. And so to Andrea's point, sometimes patients just have their presentation is that they're severely fatigued compared to usual. And that can sometimes be a manifestation of adrenal insufficiency and bringing patients in and checking cortisol levels or doing a, a cosentropin stim test can sometimes help help show you that. And you can make a patient feel a lot better who's been adrenally insufficient for a week and all of a sudden you give them steroids. It's, it's one of the most satisfying um, interventions to do. They feel like a million bucks uh, within 12 hours. Um, we can also sort of see a, a central manifestation of that with hypophysitis, um, which can be more serious and patients can present with with headaches and with, with other symptoms, and those need to be looked for and treated. Um, and we can also see, and I, I think sometimes this is less thought of, is um, patients can develop a type 1 diabetes, basically, which is a, you know an endocrinopathy of, of the pancreas, essentially, and can present in DKA. And I've had patients um, present to the emergency room with DKA without any prior diabetes. And so um, you know those you need to be aware of that, um, potentially treat patients as you would, and they're ultimately going to need um, insulin replacement. And I think important to sort of underscore here is you do not need to give steroids for these patients with endocrinopathies generally, especially if they're coming in with um, type 1 diabetes and DKA. The last thing you want to do is give steroids and further raise their glucose. And so these endocrinopathy patients can generally be managed with replacing the hormone um, that, that they're missing and don't necessarily need high doses of steroids. I, I completely agree with that. And I I've seen that uh, patients managed with high dose steroids for endocrinopathies, and it's generally not recommended. Um, so, so I, I agree with that. And I, I do want to mention that 
similar to other uh, adverse events, uh, uh, endocrinopathies are more common with CTLA-4 inhibitors, and they're actually dose-dependent. So the higher um, dose of CTLA-4 inhibitor, the higher um, incidence of endocrinopathies. Um, but yeah, um, uh, uh, getting, I think establishing a diagnosis can be really clinically challenging because of, of just how the patient presents. It can be really uh, nonspecific symptoms. Just, I just don't feel well. I just, I just don't have energy. I, it's just, you know, like very nonspecific uh, complaints from patients. Uh, so I think being, um, uh, uh, proactive and, and getting them in and getting lab, lab work done, I think is really important. Um, just like Matt said, um, doing, doing, you know, a full a TSH, T4, um, um, uh, a closentropin stim test. I think those are important, um, when patients are, are having these complaints. Yeah. I, I think, um, as we've used these drugs, I think we've all had to, to go back and, and remember some of the things we learned in when learning endocrine in medical school and a lot of these other yeah. specialties. But um, I also think it also shows it's really important to have sort of good partners and collaborators in other specialties because um, it can be challenging to make some of these diagnoses. And it's really important to have um, endocrinologists, rheumatologists, gastroenterologists, other specialists to lean on when, when it's not always so clear cut and to kind of help make some of these both diagnostic decisions and treatment decisions. I agree. And, and like hyperthyroidism, you know, I mean, it's not something that we use that I have seen much, but... I've seen so much of that in the last five years um, because of, um, you know, because of uh, checkpoints. Uh, so um, that that's something, you know, so, sometimes you need to use beta blockers. Sometimes you need to use met methamidazole. Um, you know, sometimes you need to use additional therapies um, to kind of get the patient through the hyperthyroidism. And a lot of times they become hypothyroid and then they actually need replacement. So you just continue to monitor, monitor them and monitor their symptoms. So, Andre, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, the, the side effect or the AE of, uh, of pneumonitis and, and how that could be, uh, you know, a potentially significant and devastating AE. Generally, um, do these present more often with a certain class? And, and to either of you, um, how do you sort of manage this both acutely and, and more in the, in the sort of the chronic or subacute phase? Yeah, pneumonitis... Um, broadly uh, defines basically inflammation in the lung parenchyma. And if it's unrecognized, it can lead to death. So it's it's not that common in with um, PD-1 or PD-L1. Um, it's generally reported about 5% um, of patients uh, can develop that. And radiologically, the appearance can be kind of all over the place. They can be really nonspecific. It can look like brown glass opacities. Um, acute interstitial pneumonia or like like an ARDS picture um, in terms of the, the CAT scan. Um, and it, it generally presents about, you know, I would say it's eight weeks um, and, 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 um, and more uh, in terms of treatment, but can really present, um, it, it has a, a, a broad range of uh, timing um, when it can present and often presents with shortness of breath, cough, um, can, there can be chest pain, uh, fever. Those are common manifestations of pneumonitis. So all patients presenting with any pulmonary symptoms, I usually do a chest PT, um, you know, just to kind of see what's going on. Um, sometimes, um, I, if, you know, if there's something abnormal, I get, I get IV consults, um, I get pulmonology uh, involved sometimes uh, to rule out 
infection um, or you know maybe this is uh, just malignant lung infiltrations you know just progressive disease um, sometimes we have to do a bronchoscopy um, but looking at the grade is very important grade one is just radiologic uh, uh, toxicity um, grade two is is more mild to moderate symptoms and you usually hold therapy for that if it doesn't improve then you start steroids and you know you, you give it about one to two days um, in grade three, there's usually, um, these are severe symptoms, there's hypoxia, you hold, you admit the patient, you start uh, methylprednisolone IV. Um, uh, I usually start with uh, two mgs per cake per day, um, uh, and the patient may need ventilation. Um, and if there's no improvement in, in, in 48 hours, um, I would start infliximab. Um, and also for these patients, I often give them uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, when the patients are on steroids and they do have a diagnosis of pneumonitis, um, just remember um, that if they're on steroids for uh, greater than four weeks, they should also receive PCP prophylaxis. Um, if, um, if they're on PO steroids, um, consider GI prophylaxis with a PPI also. So maybe one question for both of you is, um, so let's say we have a patient who's, who's had one of these immune-related AEs. Um, Andre, you mentioned very specifically, and I think you emphasized uh, what Matt said, which is you first stop the drug um, and then manage the AE. But but when and when do you do you rechallenge the patient? And and at that point, do you abandon that class of drug and do you pivot to something else, or do you rechallenge them with the same? How do you approach that scenario? Um, I don't know, Matt. Do you want to say something? I, I so me myself, um, it depends on what the AE was. Uh, so, um, if, if, if for a pneumonitis, I will not rechallenge the patients. I, you know, and, and the guidelines strictly say, um, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, if it's a grade one, if it's just radiologic changes versus if they were, if it was a grade three, for grade three pneumonitis, I would not rechallenge. Um, so, it, it really depends. Um, if, if you think that if the patient is on a combination immunotherapy and you think that this was really caused, like if it's a colitis and you think it was really the CTLA-4 inhibitor that caused it, um, you can um, possibly, once the patient is off steroids and, and no longer having diarrhea, you can um, think about rechallenging them with um, a PD-1 or a PD-L1 uh, agent and not the CTLA-4 inhibitor. Um, so that can be an option. But often um, I'm cautious about rechallenging because patients do well um, uh, if they've had a response already, and sometimes um, giving them, rechallenging them, um, there's there's a um, uh, a chance. I, I would I would say a high chance, uh, greater than fifty percent, that you are going to uh, reinduce uh, the immune toxicity. Yeah, so um, I I agree with that. I agree with what Andrea said, and, and um, most um, you know sort of most of her um, cutoffs as well. Um, I think things to think about is one. Um, um, Grade four toxicities of any kind, you probably should not rechallenge. Those are life-threatening toxicities and they should not get. And even grade two toxicities of some of the more serious, um, whether it's pneumonitis, cardiomyopathies, um, um, ophthalmic um, complications, um, a lot of the guidelines suggest not rechallenging. Um, I think the decision to rechallenge, I think, as Andrea sort of said, some of these patients can have long-term responses. Um, despite not continuing the drug. And I think that's really important for both providers to understand and to explain to patients that if you have, especially in the metastatic setting, if you are having a response, you don't necessarily need to continue it in order to maintain that response. 
patients um, across all of the trials, um, you can see patients with long-term durable remissions um, who have stopped for immune side effects and continue to have that benefit. And so this is not like chemotherapy. You do not necessarily need to stay on the drug to maintain that. And um, so you need to balance that with patients. And then I think sometimes the decision to re-challenge is based on what other options you have. If you know, you know, we're we're somewhat fortunate in in GU that we have been having new therapies and, and new things, um, you know, become approved over the last few years. So our patients often do have other options. And so I think you have to weigh the risk of um, of a, a rechallenging and, and getting a, a recurrent immune side effect um, with what other options you have to treat their cancer. And that depends on the, what their performance status is, um, what the status of their cancer is. It's really an individualized decision. Um, I do want to mention also um, that uh, there's been a lot of interest in whether if somebody develops an immune-related toxicity, does that mean that they're going to respond? Um, so we did a, a study um, uh, from with 1,800 patients that have received Develamab, and we looked at this. Um, we looked at were the development of immune-related adverse event, is that associated with clinical outcome in terms of survival and response. And, and there was an association uh, with an improved overall survival in patients that had an immune-related adverse events, but having an immune-related adverse events did not predict a response to therapy. So that was interested. However, um, in the patients that had a CR or PR, um, they had a higher chance of developing an immune-related adverse event. So very interesting findings. Um, we published that uh, last year, uh, 2020 in JITSI. Um, uh, so if you, you know that, I think that's an interesting um, uh, question uh, that we often get from people. Great. Well, uh, I mean, you know, that was really, for both of you, that was uh, very, uh, very informative, very enlightening. I think you both, uh, uh, despite being very thoughtful medical oncologists, do a great job in explaining it uh, to how a lay audience uh, like me, like a urologist should think about these uh, problems. But I really appreciate Matt and Andrea, really appreciate uh, your time first and foremost and your thoughtfulness. And, and certainly for our audience, for uh, any additional information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And certainly there's some additional material that both of, uh, both of our presenters have uh, assembled that can be a reference there. And uh, certainly a happy holidays to both of you. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. This was really fun to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to be a part of it. Thank you.